podcast contains mature content. Listener discretion is advised. With cocaine, one snort, and it just owned my body and soul. Something in my system wanted that. And once cocaine was there, it was like the missing link. Click. Like when you turn on lights, it's on or off. There's no halfway. Cocaine was like my on switch. Stephen King. Some people understand that feeling of an on switch that Stephen King describes. It's a need, a compulsion, an overwhelming drive for some of us who dared to dance with the allure of a substance that could make us forget our pain, suffering, grief, and heartache. It's a dance with the devil that some of us sign willingly, knowing that the next big hit, the next big high, could be our last, but still doing it anyway. Still chasing that dream in hopes of leaving ourselves behind and losing oneself to the drift of a high. Some of us come away from the chase, realizing that at some point, Something has to change. Something has to give, or we will lose our lives to following that high. Some of us are never able to stop. Never able to stop the pursuit of that demon that lures us in with promises of escaping the prisons of our lives. Join us for our upcoming series on the struggles of addiction, and where we explore our very human need to escape our lives and fall down into the spiral of drugs and alcoholism. Even if that spiral may one day lead to our very own demise at the hands of a compulsion we cannot control. If you or a loved one has been struggling with addiction or has in the past and would like to share your story, please feel free to reach out to me via social media or through email at juryroompodcast at gmail.com. Welcome to Addicted, a Jury Room production, coming soon to wherever you listen to this podcast. On this episode of The Jury Room, a true crime podcast, we look at the life of a serial killer who was a former Vietnam veteran who used the war he fought in as a means to hide the bloodthirsty desires he hid deep within himself. This serial killer would go on to murder anywhere from 13 to 16 victims over the course of his life throughout the New York area. This is Arthur Shawcross, a creature known as the Monster of the Rivers, the Genesee River Strangler, and the Genesee River Killer. Hello, and welcome to the Jury Room, where we dissect some of the most heinous, some of the most unthinkable, and some of the most monstrous crimes to ever scar the earth. From cannibalistic serial killers to decades-old unsolved mysteries, these stories are sinister enough to keep you up at night. On June 6th, 1945, 
21-year-old Arthur Roy Shawcross, an Army corporal and English immigrant, and his wife, 18-year-old Elizabeth Bessie Shawcross, welcomed their little boy, Arthur John Shawcross, into the world. Arthur John Shawcross was born at the U.S. Navy Hospital two months earlier than expected in the New England town of Kittery, Maine. Arthur was the couple's first child. He would be the oldest of four Shawcross children. While he came from a large family overall, it was not a happy childhood for the young Arthur John Shawcross. His mother, Bessie, had suffered from extensive sexual abuse in her younger years and grew up in an unhealthy environment. Bessie's own parents were abusive towards each other, constantly fighting and physically abusive. The toxic environment she grew up in may explain some of the abuse allegations that have been leveled towards the Shawcross family from Arthur Jr. after his arrest. At the age of six, Bessie's parents finally divorced, but that did not make things any better for her life. Her mother went on to date many men, and Bessie's sister was accused of allegedly inciting some of these men who were coming into their home to sexually assault her. By the age of 11, Bessie was dependent on alcohol, finding solace from the ongoing abuse at the bottom of a bottle. At an age when most children should still be playing with dolls, Bessie was nursing a full-blown alcohol addiction. Eventually, Bessie broke free from the chains of her sadistic surroundings. She would go on to marry the 21-year-old Arthur Roy Shawcross when she was only 18 years old. And with Arthur, she would give birth to four children. Unfortunately, the happiness was short-lived, and once more, Bessie would find herself in a toxic situation. Sadly, when Arthur John Shawcross was a young child, his father, Arthur Roy, would go on to abandon his family, and Bessie took their children with her to Watertown, New York, raising four children by herself as a single parent. Growing up in a single-parent home was not easy on Arthur. He was not receiving the amount of attention he craved. Starving for attention, Arthur developed a few issues. He talked like a baby at six years old and was a chronic bedwetter. Arthur was constantly having to compete with his younger siblings for the affection he so wanted. As Arthur grew a little older, he would have the desire for more attention and a bigger response from his mother, whether it was positive response or a negative one. To satisfy that need for attention, Arthur started running away from home. Arthur said around this time, he also became aware of his own sexual feelings. Around the age of eight, he started masturbating often. Sometime before Arthur was 14 years old, his aunt Tina would expose him to sex by raping him, forever twisting Arthur's perceptions of sexual relationships. His aunt Tina would force him to perform oral sex on her. Arthur said his own mother, Bessie, was aware of the abuse, and he would accuse her later on in life of having partaken in the sexual abuse. According to Arthur, 
Bessie also forced him to perform oral sex on her, as well as inserting objects into his anus. These are all accusations that the Shawcross family has denied. Not long after, he also began having oral sex with male and female friends, which is the type of sexual activity he would continue to prefer when he got older. Arthur was seeking out sex at a very young age to fulfill his fantasies. For Arthur, being at school wasn't a pleasant experience. He was academically doing an adequate job even though he struggled with undiagnosed dyslexia. Socially, mentally, and emotionally, life was not the best for him. Arthur was relentlessly made fun of by older kids who thought he was odd and they called him Oddie. Arthur wasn't an innocent bystander in the childhood bullying, however. He would project his own pain and trauma and would always take the chance to bully other children at school, just like he was being bullied. At times, he would pack a weapon, an iron bar to take to school. Arthur would lose his temper a lot, raging against his classmates, bullying them until they were broken down to tears, scaring them into submission. Years after, Arthur dwelled in his loneliness. As he got older, he was said to have an IQ of 86, indicating a low intelligence score, and it was suspected that he was borderline intellectually disabled. When he was in 8th grade, Life at home was far from picture perfect. Arthur would go to his grandmother's house a lot. It was a safe place, away from the supposed physical and sexual abuse of his mother's house. One afternoon, a man was driving down the road and spotted Arthur walking home from school. He convinced Arthur to get inside the car where he gave the man oral sex. Suddenly, the stranger put a knife to Arthur's throat, which prevented Arthur from being able to orgasm. The driver grew irate and threw Arthur over onto his stomach to violently sodomize him. When they arrived near Arthur's house, the unknown man shoved him out of his car. Arthur soon learned that he could no longer achieve an orgasm unless the sex consisted of pain. At the age of 14, Arthur had nothing but sex on his mind. He later said that he was consistently having oral sex with his own sister, Janine, and his cousin, Linda. It is unknown if the sex was consensual or not. His grades would begin dropping severely as he grew into a full-fledged teenager. He was supposed to be in high school, but he was two grade levels behind. Unable to keep up with the pressures of high school, Arthur would eventually drop out of school in the ninth grade. It is around this time that Arthur's sexual obsession grew further and darker. His sexual deeds were not only limited to people. According to Arthur, he was into bestiality. He claims to have forced sex onto cows, a horse, sheep, and even murdered a chicken during a sexual act. Arthur had developed an unhealthy appetite for sex, and nothing was going to get in the way of what he wanted. Arthur could not stay erect if penetration was involved, 
He claimed that when he was in his mid-teens, he was having sex with a young girl who lived close to him. His brother walked in on them as Arthur was performing oral sex on her. The girl's brother said there was only one way he could keep quiet about it, and that was only if Arthur would perform oral sex on him too. This sexual behavior would continue throughout Arthur's teenage years. By 1964, Arthur was almost 20 and had gone from one job to the next. He never was able to stay at one job long, and he had even begun stealing as a means to achieve his thrills. At 20, he decided it was time to settle down, and so Arthur found himself getting married. Unfortunately, his marriage would only last a few years, producing one child, a baby boy. In 1968, he and his wife divorced, and he gave up his parental rights, never seeing his son again. Not long afterwards, Arthur was recruited by the army to serve in Vietnam. Before he left for war, he and his new girlfriend, Linda Neary, got married. Going to war in Vietnam was going to teach Arthur not only how to kill, but allow him an excuse to explore how he felt when he was killing. At first, like many young men, the idea of war absolutely terrified him. He was frightened of how mercilessly and violent it was, how gruesome and definitive it could all be. He was still after all just a young man barely into his 20s. Over time though, things would change and Arthur would see war in Vietnam as an opportunity for him to explore his darker instincts and nature. Arthur started off as a dispatch clerk, but it was not long before he had the urge to be out in the thick of it with other soldiers. He realized when he was on the ground that he liked to hunt and annihilate anyone he saw as prey. Being a soldier trekking through the jungles of Vietnam gave him the anonymity to play out all of his sadistic fantasies. Arthur recalled a time early on in his tour when he came across two Vietnamese women hiding in a bush. One of the women had been shot in the head. He noticed she was still breathing and proceeded to cut her head off. Arthur would then place it atop of a pole, in hopes the enemy would come across her head and be stunned. In reality, Arthur just wanted to murder an innocent woman in cold blood. Afterwards, he carved out a piece of her thigh, cooked and ate it. He tied the other woman to a tree, forced her to perform oral sex on him. He then raped her at gunpoint, and finally, after torturing her, he then shot her in the head. He also viciously ripped the lives away from many Asian sex workers while serving in Vietnam, one of them being only an 11-year-old child. Later, Arthur blamed his lust for slaughter on the war. He said the carnage and terror of war brought out his animal impulses. He boasted constantly after the war, saying, I was beheading mamasans and nailing their heads to trees as a warning to the Viet Cong. Upon arriving home from Vietnam, Arthur was easily frustrated and could never unwind. 
It seemed he longed for the bloodlust he had felt in Vietnam. Arthur would settle down with his new wife, Linda, after leaving the military. His temper would infiltrate the marriage, however, and he would frequently submit Linda to the abuse he himself had suffered as a child. Linda would find herself a victim of his abuse often as he would beat her on a regular basis. The couple eventually moved back to New York, settling in Clayton. Linda was a Christian scientist who didn't believe the psychiatrist when they told her her husband needed to be in a psychiatric hospital for treatment and rest. They recognized that something was not right with Arthur and there was a concern that he was unstable. Since Arthur never received the therapy he so desperately needed, his mental health began declining rapidly. Linda and her family easily agitated him with their religious talks. To him, religion was witchcraft. Arthur did, however, believe that two spirits possessed him. His mother, Bessie, who was said to be his internal personality, and a cannibal spirit from the 13th century, who he says both forced him to commit all of the atrocious acts he perpetrated in Vietnam and when he returned home. Linda finally got a divorce from Arthur, freeing herself from the near-constant abuse of her unstable husband. Arthur, finding his newfound freedom a little too freeing, began to commit arson as a means to fulfill more criminal fantasies. Eventually, he was caught, however, and he was sentenced to five years in Attica Correctional Facility and then Auburn Correctional Facility for the arsons, as he was sexually fascinated with starting fires and robberies these misconducts feeding into the darker natures of his. While in prison, a riot would break out. Arthur saw an opportunity and in fact, saved the life of a correctional officer during the riot in the prison. That act would actually gain Arthur some goodwill from the courts, so he was released early in October of 1971 on account of his good behavior. And now, for a quick break. Are you finding everyday life boring? Finding work becoming stressful? Are you looking for something to distract yourself? And maybe learn something while getting distracted? Try tuning in to Where Distractions Podcast, a weekly podcast hosted by me, Alex Underbaki, and me, Christy McCann, where we rotate between true crime, conspiracy theories, paranormal stories, folklore, and more. All things that most people would consider weird. Which is what we're all about. You can stream Where Distractions Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you need a distraction, we got you. Now, back to the show. In 1972, Arthur married a woman who was a devout Catholic, Clara Neal. Clara seemed to be helping Arthur in many ways. He had a positive change in his behavior due to Clara being a good influence in his life. However, they divorced 18 months later, and with that divorce, the one small period in time where Arthur wasn't perpetrating crimes, would be lost. In May of 1972, 
Arthur took the lives of two children. It is unknown who they were. After being caught, he confessed to the murders. He struck a plea deal with the prosecutors. Arthur pleaded guilty to manslaughter instead of first-degree murder for one of the children's death. This would earn him a shorter prison sentence. In doing this, the charge for the other child's death was dropped. There was not a lot of evidence outside of his confession to go on, and he was only sentenced to 25 years in prison. After Arthur spent 15 years in prison for murdering the children in Watertown, he was free once again after the prison staff and social workers ignored the psychiatrist's diagnosis of Arthur being a schizophrenic psychopath. Instead, the workers said he was no longer a danger to society. He was paroled in 1987. Arthur could never hold down a job for long. As soon as his employers would find out about his criminal history, they would fire him. He also couldn't find a place to live in Watertown because no one wanted him as a neighbor. Arthur was now a large man at over 300 pounds. He was known to have had a bad temper and he was intimidating. Arthur moved around with his then girlfriend, Rosemarie Wally, until finally settling in Rochester. In March of 1988, Arthur's craving to kill again became overwhelmingly intense. Over the course of about 20 months, Arthur went on to strangle, assault, and mutilate 11 female sex workers. He discarded their bodies by the Genesee River, earning him the monikers the Genesee River Killer, the Monsters of the Rivers, and the Rochester Strangler names that struck fear in the communities within the area he preyed upon. The victims were 25-year-old Patricia Ives, 22-year-old Francis Brown, 34-year-old June Cicero, 32-year-old Darlene Trippy, 28-year-old Anne Marie Steffen, 27-year-old Dorothy Blackburn, Kimberly Logan, age unknown, 30-year-old June Stouts, 22-year-old Marie Welch, Elizabeth Gibson, age unknown, and 15-year-old Dorothy Keller. All but one woman was murdered in Moreau County. He killed Elizabeth Gibson in nearby Wayne County. His first victim was Dorothy Dotsie Blackburn. Arthur claimed she bit his penis so hard he bled. She allegedly started to call him names, and this enraged him. To get revenge, he began to sink his teeth into her vagina and strangled her to death. Afterwards, he got rid of her body by dumping her into the Salmon River. Arthur trolled Lake Avenue by the Genesee River. The sex workers knew him as Mitch. Arthur was laid off from his job a few months after murdering Dotsie and flew into a rage. He went trolling for a sex worker and lured Anna Stefan into the car with him. He failed to get an erection, which Anna poked fun of. 
Arthur was irate. He began to beat Anna, and she fought him, trying her best to get away from him, running into the Genesee River. Arthur caught her, submerged her into the water until she could no longer breathe, and left her lifeless body to float down the river. Next, Arthur became so-called friends with Dorothy Keller, a former waitress. On October 21st, 1989, she and Arthur spent all day fishing together. They had consensual sex and everything seemed to be going fine. Dorothy brought up the fact that Arthur was having sex with multiple women and embezzling. Just because she spoke the truth and told him her feelings, he became incensed. His old rage bubbling up and unfortunately targeting Dorothy. Arthur picked up a log and hit Dorothy with it on the side of her head repeatedly until she died. He told police that he went back to where he hid her body by the river and cast her skull into the water. Sex workers Patricia Ives, Francis Brown, and Maria Welch were his next victims, who Arthur killed amid having sex with them. Arthur said all three of these women attempted to rob him of money. He murdered them out of fury, as he always did. Patricia's body was hidden under a pile of construction material. He abandoned Francis's body down the bank of the river, and Maria's body was put into some shrubs on the side of the road. Arthur's next victim, June Stouts, was a friend to him and his lover, Rose. He suffocated her after she supposedly said she was going to tell the police about him. He called on one of his friends to assist him in eradicating her organs in order to hurry along the process of decomposition, which he said was doing her a favor. Authorities were most perplexed by her murder because she wasn't a sex worker, and her corpse was brutalized more than other victims of the Genesee River Killer. The vicious predator had anally mutilated June's dead body. The killer proceeded to break her neck and then cut her from throat to her vagina, discarding her body over the bridge that looked out over the Salmon River. A few days later, he went back to her corpse. Arthur let his cannibalistic urges take over. He took a saw to her genitals, eating the parts he cut off. June's boyfriend did not report her as a missing person for three weeks. She often stayed gone for long periods of time, so when she didn't come home, it was not alarming. Elizabeth Gibson was the next woman who would meet her untimely demise. She was sitting in Arthur's car, waiting on him outside of a little restaurant while he made a quick trip in for coffee. Arthur said while they were in the middle of oral sex, she supposedly tried to steal from him. While strangling her, she wrestled him so hard, she broke the gear shift. In December of 1989, he picked up two sex workers that month, Darlene Trippy and June Cicero. Darlene's life was taken after Arthur said she joked about him not being able to get an erection. After he strangled her to death, he sawed off her vagina and ate it. 
Afterwards, he abandoned her body in the woods. Felicia Steffens was his last victim. She too was a sex worker. Arthur says he can't recall the details of how he killed her or why, but that he did desert her body near Darlene and June's remains. On December 31st, 1989, Felicia's jeans and ID were recovered by a few hikers. Felicia's corpse was discovered on January of 1990 during an aerial search. Instead of retrieving her body from under the frozen water, the police decided to leave her there in hopes of setting up a possible honey trap for the unknown killer stalking through New York. The murderer's psychological profile indicated to them that whoever this killer was would likely come back to where he had left the bodies and before they knew it, the Genesee River killer did just that. The investigation into these murders had been going on for nearly 15 months before investigators were finally able to catch the Genesee River killer, now known to be that of Arthur Shawcross. A war room was created by Monroe PD for FBI criminal profilers to help with the case. The room was filled with details about the victims they had found, the crime scenes, and the murders, so the profilers would have all the necessary information when they arrived. To collect any information about the history of the victims, Officers who normally performed background checks on suspects and criminals were put to work. Everyone was working 18 or more hours per day. It was taxing on all those who were involved. On top of the exhausting hours, they were also taking on the harsh criticism of the public who thought they weren't trying hard enough. The police stalked out the area where June was found in the frozen water and soon, they spotted Arthur Shawcross as he sat in his car. Some reports say he was masturbating, others say he was outside of the car urinating. He was on a bridge that overlooks Salmon Creek. Arthur was pulled over that day, January 3rd, 1990. He was interviewed and allowed to go home that night. However, he was being closely watched and brought in the next day for more extensive questioning after the police gathered more physical evidence that night. They found napkins at the murder scene that matched the napkins that were used at the food services shop where he was employed making salads. After contacting the makers of the napkins, authorities discovered no other business in Rochester sold those same napkins. After Arthur was confronted with all the evidence they had gathered, he admitted to the 11 murders. During the investigation, authorities found jewelry from a victim in Arthur's previous wife's Clara's possession. Arthur had also been found in Clara's car and it is thought that he used her car to perpetrate most of the murders. Arthur had gifted these jewelry pieces to her. Clara was at risk of being implicated as an accomplice to Arthur's murders. Luckily for Clara, charges were never pressed against her in relation to the murders. 
to attempt to justify his evil actions to others and himself. Arthur talked about how he thought the war had a lot to do with his violent ways. In a quote from Arthur Shawcross, he gives insight into the mind of a serial killer, let loose upon the unsuspecting women of Vietnam. The VC put razor blades up whores' vaginas, shoved them inside a cut deep in where you'd never know until it was too late. When the GIs would fuck them, they would slit their penises to shreds or cut them clean off. I was with some guys, Roke Koreans, who took a whore and put a fire hose inside of her and turned on the water. She died almost instantly. Her neck jumped up about a foot from her body. Another time we took another whore and tied her to two small trees legs to the trees and bent down. She had a razor blade inside her vagina. She was cut from her anus to her chin. Then the trees were let go. She was slit in half. Left her there hanging between the trees. This may be why I did what I did to those girls. In November of 1990, Arthur's trial began and it was televised garnering a lot of attention due to the explicit and shocking details of the case. This was a serial killer, a rapist, a sadist, and a cannibal. Behaviors not often seen in real life. Arthur's murders had caught up with him, however, and the Genesee River killer was finally brought to justice. Arthur was first tried for murdering the 10 women in Monroe County. Arthur attempted to vie for his innocence by reason of insanity, but his attempt was fruitless. And now, for a quick break. Hey there, it's Dawn, the host of Method and Madness. Yes, it's another true crime podcast, but hear me out. Fascinated by human nature? Ever try wrapping your head around why some people do what they do? On Method and Madness, we'll dive deep into the evidence, explore the why behind the crime, all the while recognizing that the victims are real people. And these aren't just horror stories, but horrific true events. Method and Madness, available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Now, back to the show. Even though a forensic psychiatrist did testify that Arthur had suffered some form of brain damage, Dissociative Identity Disorder, PTSD, Antisocial Personality Disorder, and still struggled with the sexual abuse he endured as a child. The psychiatrist even showed the jury a video of Arthur under hypnosis as he answered questions sometimes in a high-pitched voice mimicking a woman. However, the prosecution psychiatrist said Arthur was only trying to get out of going to prison, pretending to have mental illnesses. The jury found him guilty of the murders, deciding he was more than sane enough to go to prison after six and a half hours of deliberation. Later it was found that Arthur did have a cyst pressing against his temporal lobe, and he had a lot of scarring on his frontal lobes. 
These lobes are responsible for making decisions and self-control. Perhaps this damage would explain some of Arthur's lack of morality. Arthur Shawcross was given a sentence of 250 years in prison. Arthur was tried a few months later in Wayne County for the murder of Elizabeth Gibson. He pleaded guilty and was handed a life sentence. He and Rose eventually split up in June of 1997. And on July 10th, 1997, his longtime love, Clara Neal, the woman whose car he used to murder so many women, the two exchanged vows at the Sullivan County Correctional Facility. The facility even allowed the couple to have conjugal visits. People were outraged about the conjugal visits. This man had murdered and sexually assaulted so many women, and yet, here he was being allowed to have sex as if he was a free man. In 1999, Arthur wasn't done getting the attention he always desired. He began causing yet another uproar by giving his paintings and poems he had written to people outside of the prison walls. There are people who seek memorabilia from serial killers, and so his poetry and paintings would have a market despite how distasteful it all was. Buyers would sell these items on eBay, and Arthur made a profit off these items, since he was making money from this. He was sentenced to two years of solitary confinement, but he got his time reduced to nine months. Despite being punished for profiting, in 2001, there was a yearly art show which inmates took part in. It made people furious that Arthur could profit from his art, which sold for over $500 per sketch. By 2002, the highly condemned art show officially banned prisoners from selling their artwork. In 2003, British reporter Catherine English interviewed Arthur Shawcross and what he described in a bragging fashion was simply unconceivable. He happily spoke about cutting out and eating three of the victim's vaginas. He claimed he ate the penis of one of the children he murdered, even going back to the body to have sex with it. But he did not want to talk about it very much, yet he still wanted the part to be known. On November 10th of 2008, Arthur's leg began to cause him pain and trouble. After he told officers about it, he was sent to the Albany Medical Center. It was there that 63-year-old went into cardiac arrest. He was pronounced dead at 9.50 that night. Arthur Shawcross, the Genesee River Killer, was no longer a threat to society. He no longer was able to profit off the lives of innocent women. He no longer was able to stock the area near the Genesee River in New York. Thanks for listening. And remember, you never know what's lurking in the shadows, lingering around the corner, walking past your house at night. So watch out, stay safe, and keep listening. This has been the jury room.
Women who have the misfortune to find themselves in the line of sex work are more often than not the target of many serial killers. From Jack the Ripper, to the Butcher Baker, to the Long Island serial killer, or the New Bedford serial killer, many sex workers are found to be the target of victims of these vicious killers. The Ipswich Ripper is just another example of a cruel serial killer who lurked and stalked the streets of Ipswich, England. Looking for victims he could quickly abduct and then brutally strangle to death, he would go on to murder at least five women, all in the sex worker trade, but it is very possible that there are far more victims than is currently known. Join me for the next episode of The Jury Room, where I dissect the bloody history of the Ipswich Ripper, also known as the Suffolk Strangler, also known as Stephen Wright.